Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight behind the mics, we've got the always excellent Joe Eaton joining us in studio. Hey, Joe. Hello. How are you going? Thank, thank you so much for going into the studio to like make everything work and do the paneling. You're the only person who had to leave the comfort of their own home tonight. It was kind of exciting to leave the house, to be honest. <laughs> I hear you. Um, also behind the mics is me, Laura Summers, um, joining you from my study at home, which I never, ever leave. So <laughs> I'm quite excited to have the prospect of lockdown um, unlocking us a little bit and maybe leaving my studio. So tonight on the show, we've got some really fun discussions for you. Have you ever wondered how doctors treat tiny babies with fluids or other medicine? It's hard enough to find a vein in small children, let alone in a premature baby. First up tonight, we'll be chatting with Wei Su and Mubin Youssef, who are both founders of a medical startup called Navi Medical Technologies. And they've come up with an ingenious solution for this teeny tiny problem. So that'll be a really fun conversation. I'm looking forward to chatting to them. And following that, we'll be shifting gear to talking about the milkshake video. You know, that milkshake video, the one produced by the federal government as an education showpiece about consent for young people. We'll be having a chat with Millie Schmidt, who's the head of product at Usability Hub, about testing digital assets for comprehension and usability. And that's going to be an interesting chat, too. And I'm sure lots of people will have fun opinions about the milkshake video. It's, it was extremely polarizing online. So I'm looking forward to having that discussion as well. But before then, we've got a few pieces of news we'd like to share with you coming from around the internet, over the world, and in Australia. And we'll start with the local piece. Um, You may have seen this on ZDNet. New South Wales police have just recently announced that they're using artificial intelligence to analyze CCTV footage. Did you see this happening, Joe, earlier in the week? I didn't see this story. Oh, well, look... They are saying that they're using machine learning and artificial intelligence to help speed up the work of analyzing the CCTV footage that they have all over the state, um, specifically as part of a murder and insult investigation. And that they're saying it's like significantly speeding up their analysis process. Um, they've been in in sort of flight on doing a bunch of re-architecting and system replacements. And this new approach is supposed to help with things like object detection. Um, They don't mention specifically facial recognition. And obviously, that's kind of the bugbear everybody worries about, um, whether that's going to be uh, fair or biased or if it's going to perform better for people of certain skin tones. but certainly, it's the, the whole space of object recognition is a really interesting one. Um, and if, for instance, you're trying to follow a specific car across CCTV footage over time, that actually seems like quite an interesting use of the technology. 
Um, one of the things they say in the piece is using computer vision, it can search to recognize objects, vehicles, locations, such as a backpack or a tie or a type of shoes a person of interest might be wearing. So that's pretty specific. Um, and then they completely avoid dealing with the question of facial recognition. They say it's being designed with ethics front and center and in consultation with privacy ex experts with a particular focus on avoiding bias. But um, That was going to be my next question. <laughs> I know. Obviously, like if they can, if they can recognize a tie they can recognize a face but yeah they're they're deliberately not saying that and uh you know obviously the proof will be in the pudding and right now they're just saying just trust us it's it's going to be fine and you know we all know how uh how well that goes <laughs> just trust us is always like my least favorite form of technology um consultancy so but we'll, we'll see how this goes and speaking of uh questionable um, law enforcement practices, mm -hmm. the FBI um, have for two years apparently been clandestinely operating an encrypted communications platform called Anom. And it was used by um, drug traffickers and organised crime. And then because the FBI was running it, they caught them. So that's um, kind of ended up in the news here in Australia because uh, it, it was a joint... Um, a joint operation, I think, with um, with the federal police here. Do you know much more about um, this? Yeah, that's right. Look, I did. I saw some very entertaining, spicy hot takes about this on Twitter. Um, one of which was, "Hey, criminals, if you don't use open source software, this is what you set yourselves <laughs> up for." <laughs> which I have to admit, I enjoyed. Um, but yeah, no, look, uh, I did. I did see that it sounds like the Australian police forces were supporting this sort of multinational effort, um, and it allowed agents to monitor almost 12,000 devices in 90 countries, oh um, the likes of which involved activity by as many as 300 distinct transnational crime organizations. So that's a big sting. I saw, it, I saw it on the TV news last night and they were like, yes, we're hoping that now people will just come and turn themselves in. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, they do say you know, we're hoping that this, this project, it's the whole like operation was called Trojan shield, which is absolutely a mixed metaphor that makes my <laughs> yeah. teeth ache. Like it's a Trojan horse or it's a shield. It's not one or the other. Take your <laughs> it's not both. <laughs> but anyway, putting that to this side, they said a goal of the Trojan shield investigation is to shake the confidence in the entire industry, i.e. organized crime, because the FBI is willing and able to enter the space and monitor messages. And I think, like, everyone's response to that would be, like, yeah, we know that. <laughs> like, of course they're willing to enter the space. Um, you know, the sort of significant part of this work is simply that they were able to successfully run an encrypted messaging platform that no one realized they were the people behind it and they thought it was Just a signal. no like, one. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, look, I mean, I have, I have some personal privacy feelings about mm -hmm. this, like, but I do... I do think that um, certainly from a law enforcement point of view, they're be going to be calling this a win. Um, and without more data to hand, I probably shouldn't like go off on a rant. So <laughs> yeah, can you mm. um, can you tell us about the uh, the latest uh, CDN outage? Oh yes. Thank you. Um, good, good memory, Joe. The other thing that's been happening, which may be impacting more people other than criminals, is that a whole bunch of websites went down yesterday for just an hour, but a whole bunch of them were unavailable all of a sudden and no one understood what was happening. So this was um, 
websites as diverse as the BBC, Pinterest, the Financial Times, Reddit, The Conversation, and many others. Um, and the reason why so many diverse websites went down all of a sudden was because they all used the same CDN. Are you familiar with that term, Joe? Is that something you've heard of before? I am, but I feel like we should explain it. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, well, CDN is a content delivery network, and usually what its goal is is to actually host the files of a website as close as possible to the person looking for them. So instead of sending, say for instance, I wanted to look at the BBC website, instead of me pinging a server over in the UK and the UK sending a you know, the files all the way back, you know, physically around the world, um, if you have a CDN who's hosted a local cache of those files, you can maybe ping a server in Sydney or a, you know, even a server close to home and get them delivered significantly faster. Um, they, they sort of came up around the era of when images were really large and heavy and hard to host, and a lot of them focused purely on image hosting, but most of them these days seem to do pretty much the whole website and all the, all the web file assets like related to the whole website. Um, and yeah, they went down for an hour and took a whole chunk of the internet with them. I saw one website had just reverted to like posting its articles on Google Docs for an hour. <laughs> oh, really? That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. were, we Look, were I, paying close I, I, attention to it at work. Yeah, it, it certainly is an interesting way to observe like what in technology jargon is called a single point of failure, mm. right? So where you have a whole bunch of websites leaning on a specific service, and if suddenly every time you go to look up you know, a web page or a web asset, um, the service responds back, sorry, can't be found, you know, 404, 404 or some other like 500 error on the web. Um, then you see like, you know, significant amounts of um, outages across the world. And it's it's certainly something for us to keep in mind as website developers and as like, you know, citizen uh, citizen citizens of the internet more broadly is that it's probably not a great thing for us um, collectively to be relying on too few services. Like in order to know that we have a robust web ecosystem, we want to have lots of different servers for lots of different file types. Um, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir for all the nerds in the crowd, but for everyone else, it just means we don't want to have too much consolidation of the industry, right? Yeah. We don't want to see too, too few people hosting most of the website files in the world. That would anyway, be ideal. Triple R. Hey, Laura. How's it going? You're on mute. That wonderful saying of oh, all times. Oh, my goodness. I did it on air. I'm on mute. Classic. Hello. <laughs> I love it. Hello. Wouldn't Internet. be a tech Hello, show without Melbourne. it. Um, tonight on the show, we're going to be having a chat to two co-founders from a new startup called Navi Medical Technologies. Every year, millions of thin, flexible tubes called central venous catheters, or CVCs, are placed into the veins of critically ill newborns and children to deliver life-saving therapies. However, these are actually very hard to place, especially on very small babies and infants. 
Um, and the crew from Navi Medical Technologies have been coming up with a fascinating tool to try and make this easier for clinicians. We'll be chatting with Wei Su, who is the co-CFO and executive director, and Mubin Youssef, who is the CTO. Welcome, Wei, and welcome, Mubin. We are so excited to talk to you. Hi, Laura. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having Hello. us. Hello. Thank you for having us. Lovely to see you both. Um, so tell us a little bit about your journey. I know that you both came through the MAP, um, which is the Melbourne Accelerator Program um, Startup uh, Accelerator Program. <laughs> Sorry, saying the same words twice. Um, and you've now been out in the wild and developing your technologies. Um, tell us a little bit about the startup and, and where you're at right now. Out about in the wild sounds about right. So, um, the, um, we actually started as a team in a classroom setting way before we um, had participated in Matt's Velocity program. So um, uh, the team of six co-founders, myself, Mubin, and, um, and four others met through a course called Biodesign Innovation that was jointly offered by the Melbourne Business School and the University of Melbourne's Biomedical Engineering Department. So that was back in 2016 when um, when the course, uh, it was an elective for, uh, for those of us who were completing our MBA and uh, a subject that the biomedical engineering students were able to take. Um, Christian, our chief medical officer, uh, we met as one of the clinicians who kindly volunteered their time to assist with um, with the course. And uh, we spent nine months in a classroom setting actually going through the biodesign innovation course, investing significant amounts of time, undertaking hours of observations in clinical settings, etc. cetera. Um, and at the end of it, we... Um, had such a good experience working together as a team and we had a really good idea that we were working on and we incorporated in 2017, undertook a number of accelerator programs since then and here we are now with a clinical prototype that's being used um, in the clinical setting at the Royal Women's Hospital, um, being used in patients to collect clinical data. That's amazing. I actually just got chills listening to you say that, like to see, to, to hear your story going from a classroom setting to having your clinical device being used on actual patients in the hospital, um, just down the road from me, actually. Um, wow. I'm, I'm really uh, curious to know, how did you land on this particular problem? Like, I imagine there's so many problems to solve in the biomedical sphere. Like, what what brought you to this one or what particularly um, interested you about, like, teeny tiny babies? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, either uh, of Go you. ahead, Mubin. Yeah, so um, while you were doing the biodesign course, I mean, it was 2017. Never been into the clinical setting that much from a, from a doctor's point of view. I thought there wouldn't be a lot of problems to solve here. It's 2017, the technology is um, at its peak. You have AI, so many technologies going on here and there. Um, but when we actually went into the clinical setting, we we, we did only went to, um, you know, the neonatal intensive care unit, but we also went um, into the cardiac setting and we saw a lot of different problems, like even very small problems, um, you know, there were no solutions of and there were makeshift solutions that doctors were using. Um, and, and that was the moment that we learned that, you know, there's a lot of things that we can solve. So through that practice in the biodesign innovation course, we were able to come up with um, a lot of needs. Now, 
the reason that we picked this particular need was because um, this need consistently came up every time we would go to NDQ and we would talk to, you know, Christian, our um, chief medical officer and other people in the NDQ. Um, and, and also the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the people in our company or some of the co-founders um, sort of were pretty close um, to, 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 this, uh, to this particular domain of neonatology. You know, one of our co-founders, um, he was a premature baby. Um, and, and me personally being from Pakistan, um, like we have a very high um, birth rate for premature babies, um, you know, babies that are born with low birth weights. And, and, and for me, it was personal as well. Um, so, so, yeah, I guess that was one of the reasons um, that, you know, focused us towards this particular need. Yeah. Um, for, for those who might not be familiar, um, can you just tell the, our listeners what NICU means? Um, just, just to, like, clarify terminology. Yep. So NICU is short short form for neonatal intensive care unit. So it's like a newborn ICU. Mm. And for for um our context as well, like when you're going in and you're seeing these clinicians trying to treat these babies, like what kinds of problems were you seeing before you had developed this technology that sort of inspired you to to get into it? Like what kinds of issues were they having trying to treat these um very tiny babies? Do you want to go away or do you want me to answer? Yeah, perhaps Wei can take this one. Yeah, um, so there, there, there are there can be a range of issues. So the problem that we're working on is really around placement of central lines. So central lines are uh, common life-saving procedures that are actually up to up to about half of patients that um, get admitted to uh, neonatal intensive care units require a central line to be placed, and um, you know doctors don't really place these lines. Um, uh, for uh, they, they really only place these lines under very critical conditions when it's needed to deliver life-saving drugs or nutrients. So uh, that's the problem that we landed on. But while we were doing our observations, there were a number of other problems, um, as you can imagine, for uh, the pretty much the youngest and most vulnerable patient populations you can think of. Uh, and these are babies that are born premature. They need as much care and as much treatment as they can get. Um, they're often in uh, incubators or on treatment beds surrounded by equipment and medical devices. And there can be a range of issues um, uh, arising from that kind of environment. So just having alarms and alerts that are going off and um uh, all the way through to hypothermia that babies can be experiencing, uh, and and just the sheer size and um, uh, of, of these babies, some of them some of them can be less than less than a kilogram, so that's really really tiny, um, and just being able to uh, deliver treatment procedures, drugs or medication and to, to these very tiny beings can be very, very challenging. So like if you think about the complexities of treating adults and just shrink them by that much, uh, the complexities just compound. Yeah, I can imagine knowing how much medicine to give babies of that size must be a really hard challenge. Um, so, so knowing that you, you're focusing in on this problem of placing the central line, do you want to tell us, um, maybe I'll throw this question to you, Mubin. Um, or sorry, is it Mubin? I'm pronouncing it wrong, aren't I? Yep, it's Mubin. You Mubin, got it right. My, yeah, sorry, my apologies. Um, just to, yeah, throw this to you. Do you want to tell us a bit about um, the technology you're developing and how you sort of make this challenge of placing these lines a bit easier for clinicians? Yep. 
So our device, um, it's called the NeoNet. What it does basically is that um, it uses the electrical signals of the patient's heart, which are which is called the ECG or electrocardiogram. Um, as the catheter moves um, through the umbilical pathway, which is one of the uh, pathways where the line is inserted, um, as it as it's inserted from the umbilical pathway all the way to the heart, these signals tend to get stronger. Um, these signals are then transmitted via the catheter um, to a small adapter that sits on the outer side of the catheter, and it goes to our device. Um, and our device um, has a AI-driven um, software that sort of reads those changes and decodes those uh, changes in a way that is then readable to the clinician. Um, so all in all, we have a bunch of ECG signals um, that relate to what the actual location is. We use that data to um, um, train some machine learning software, and then we use those machine learning trained models in the device to, you know, in real time, tell the clinicians um, where the tip is. I saw um, a prototype of your technology when I was visiting the um, the the startup exhibition at the Melbourne Connect event, um, I think, gosh, was that a, a month ago now? Um, doesn't it feel like a different lifetime now that we're back in lockdown? And um, it's it's an, it's a really interesting device. You sort of imagine um, trying to place this tiny little line inside babies, and then you've got uh, um, sort of a display next to it that gives you a bunch of dashboards and monitors that gives you some indicators that tell you sort of how close to where you want to be at it, um, that your central line is. Um, so, so tell us a bit about the process of developing this, like how, how difficult was it to get the machine learning models to be useful and how, how difficult was it to work out what, what the sort of visual indicators needed to be to support the clinician in this very like fiddly task? Yeah. So I'll, I'll address this one. <clears throat> so I guess you've asked, um, the two parts of this question. The first one is, um, what are the challenges that we face creating um, this machine learning algorithm? And the other one is how we got to the indications that we have now. Um, <clears throat> the, to answer the first question, the major problem that we have um, with the machine learning application is that the data is pretty hard to get. So, so you know, any machine learning application is data driven. They say that your model is as good as your data, and the data in the medical setting, it's pretty hard to get by. So for example, for us, we had to do multiple studies just to get access to that data. And even then the quality of the data, it's pretty low because for example, the way we capture um, um, this data in, in, a, in a clinical setting is that uh, we use a ECG monitor, an off-the-shelf ECG monitor that continuously collects data as the catheter is inserted. But then for example, to label that data with a location, you only get that location once they have done an x-ray towards the end, which is one of the issues with this current procedure. So all in all, you get, let's say, 10 different ECG waveforms, but you can only label one. So the main challenge would, would, become, would then become, how would you label the other nine? So that was one of the other challenges that you get after you get so much data. Um, to answer your second question quickly is, um, the good thing about our team is that, and, and, and having a chief, uh, chief medical officer in the team is that we get access to a lot of different clinicians, um, not just in Australia, but also in the US. Um, and we have also talked to other clinicians in, um, in different other countries, like some parts of uh, South Asia and Africa. Um, and because of those conversations, we have been able to understand what they are actually after in terms of um, an indication on the, on the screen. Um, so all in all, in summary, we, we, we try to involve the user um, into the process as, as much as we can because, you know, 
developing the software on a bench top, you know, with just your own mind is easy, but then going out and showing it to clinician is another hurdle that you have to pass through because they're the ones who would be buying your device. Hmm. Wow, that's a fascinating labeling problem. I hadn't even thought about that, that you don't really have any classification to offer other than correct or, you know, in place or not. But the actual process of putting in place is like, you know, kind of like beep, 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 closer, 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 but not quite there. But you don't have any of the data that kind of tells you that you're quite warm or you're very warm or you're, you know, burning hot. Um, I, wish, I wish it was that simple. Mm. I thought it would be that simple. But then when you saw the, when we saw the data, there's so much variance in there that, you know, you have to think of creative ways to, you know, solve those challenges. Um, Sue, I saw on your news page that you're just commencing a study at the Royal Women's Hospital on um, PICCC lines. Do you want to tell us a bit more about this study that just got started? Yeah, so uh, we've been quite fortunate in the last year to have been successful with a number of uh, government grants. So um, despite COVID, I guess that gave us the opportunity to actually turn our attention to grant applications, which can be quite time consuming. Um, so we, um, we uh, thankfully, the um, time spent and the effort spent was uh rewarding in this particular case so with one of the um with one of the grants that we were successful with that actually allows us to expand our study to uh, a different type of central line essentially so peak lines or peripherally inserted uh, lines are uh, slight, a different type of central lines that can be placed in uh, babies and young children as well um, the initial studies that we had going at the Royal Women's Hospital looks at umbilical venous catheterization. So that's essentially inserting the line, as you would have seen, Laura, at, um, at the exhibit uh, where we had a little uh, baby doll uh, that uh, where we had the line going in through essentially uh, an umbilical vein. So yeah, that's obviously, mm. uh, for obvious reasons, that's only possible in newborn babies. So expanding into a different type of central line, so peak lines in this case, allows us to uh, investigate essentially and collect uh, data, as Mubin had indicated the importance of clinical data, uh, allows us to do so with uh, older babies and older children potentially. So what we're seeking to do here with this expanded study is to collect slightly different sets of clinical data to help Mubin with, um, with the machine learning application so that we can potentially use our technology on uh, different patient groups and different types of central line placements. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, can I ask a slightly technical question, Mubin? If, if, would you be thinking about transfer learning to try and apply your existing model to like a slightly different data set? Um, I had thought about um, using transfer learning. Uh, I feel like transfer learning is more useful for 2D data sets um, like images. Mm -hmm. um, for 1D, um, I think just looking at the data and figuring out the correlations and relationships and figuring out the features um, sort of got us there. Um, and after that, it was just a uh, matter of trying different machine learning algorithms um, and seeing what you get on the other end. Um, I guess one of the main reason why we don't have, why we're not a big data sort of application is because again, it's medical data. So we're dealing with a limited data set. So we have to think about a lot of data augmentation as well. Is there a way to not only just label these unlabeled segments, but is there a way to augment the data so that you can increase the number of data points and then make your um, model stronger? 
Um, so again, yeah. yeah. Would that be looking at creating synthetic data sets from the existing like real label data that you have? Um, that's right. Plus um, some of the literature that's out there. Um, there are a lot of papers that show different waveforms, and we have been using that as a way to, you know, um, create those data sets as well. Oh, fascinating. Um, for our listeners who may not be familiar, um, there's a, a technique that's often talked about in data science and machine learning, which is um, essentially when you have this problem that Mubin is describing, which is you don't really have quite enough data to like get a, a useful signal out of your machine learning model, um, you can essentially create fake data points or like duplicate the data you already have, but just do small perturbations on it, um, but essentially keep the the important features roughly the same. And that lets you to sort of essentially expand your data set and hopefully get to a better result at the end um, by creating data from your data, essentially. Do you think that's a reasonable explanation, Mubin? Yep, yep, that makes sense. Well, I'll, I'll um, finish off by throwing to Weisu. If uh, um, anyone interested who's um, listening to us tonight wants to learn more about the startup or maybe there's some uh, cluey investors who are listening in who might want to throw some cash your way, how would they find out more about your startup or get in touch with you? I am so glad you asked because we are probably at a point where we will be looking to commence a capital raise very shortly. So if there are any of those uh, investors out there that you speak of, we will certainly be very happy to take any um, to take any calls or uh, reach out to us by email. So to begin with, um, uh, our website is probably a, the first place to start. So uh, you can either Google Navi Medical Technologies or navitechnologies.com will be um, will be where you'll be able to find us. We're also on LinkedIn, um, so Navi Medical Technologies again, um, and that's N-A-V-I Medical Technologies. Thank you so much, Mubin, um, Mubin Youssef, and Weisu. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you both, um, and all the best for your startup. I hope it goes great guns. Thank you. Thank you so very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We are going to have a chat with Millie Schmidt, who is the director of product at Usability Hub, a tool that you use to test um, and validate designs of digital products of all types. She's going to be joining us to have a chat about a piece she wrote for their blog called No Crying Over Spilled Milkshakes. And it is a very hilarious, in my view, um, discussion of the milkshake video that was produced uh, by the federal government to help young people understand consent in um, sexual instances and experiences and got a lot of blowback and a lot of people had a lot of opinions about it. So welcome, Millie, and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I should also mention that Millie is a good friend slash work wife slash constant signal companion of mine. So we are we knew each other very well. So um, there is a you know lots of um, lots of backstories here for us to share on air. Try not to do too many in jokes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so so tell us, Millie, what inspired you to write about this piece in the first place? 
Oh, I was trying to preempt what your first question was going to be. Um, uh, so this one's an interesting one. It uh, it was a kind of two things happened at the same time that we decided we should jump on. The first thing was the Australian government uh, launched this campaign uh, that tore through Twitter like a wildfire, um, which was, uh, as you said, it was this <laughs> uh, very strange, uh, pastel-coloured, Wes Anderson, uh, kind of in the vein of um, this quite niche thing that happened many years ago, which was a, um, a, a British satirical video series called Look Around You, which was like fun educational satire, um, but very off the wall. And all of this may sound, you're saying, unrelated to discussions about uh, sexual consent for young people. And you would be right, because the topic matter uh, and the tone of the video, uh, I guess, to be polite, I would say they clashed. Um, so that that kind of came out. The video is quite long. I think the video was like close to five minutes long. And, um, you know, it was launched with a quite a, a big... Uh, yeah, like quite a lot of confidence, I think. And yeah, it, it, let's just say it fell very, very flat. Um, and then I think what happened after that was after the blowback on social media, we haven't heard anything more. And from what I can tell, the campaign is being canned. Um, it, it was also um, speculated, I don't want to say it was necessarily true, but um, the the budget for this project, which was essentially the government trying to address some of these issues of consent, was speculated to be in the multi-millions of dollars. People were very, um, they were mad about how bad the video was, but they were also mad about how expensive the video would have been given it was taxpayer money. Anyway, it was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. I did Um, actually see some stats on the price of it on Twitter. Um, I don't know how valid they are, but it seemed like the, the cost of producing this video campaign had pretty much eaten up most of the budget towards the consent work. Um, so yeah, I suppose there was, you know, the legitimate complaint that it was, you know, a lot of money spent with no sort of space to adjust. Um, if they were a startup, you would call that not very agile. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, simultaneously, uh, our company, uh, usability hub, we are growing our product offering and we had just launched the ability to test videos on our platform. So previously we, um, you're only really able to test images and we made it possible for you to upload uh, an MP3 or an MP4, so video or audio, and then you can run that in um, some of our, our test formats as well, which means you could put essentially a, you could put a survey out there with the video in it and ask people questions about it as a form of design research. Um, so we're doing a lot more uh, support for different types of designs now, um, and, and this was one of them. So it just seemed like a good opportunity to jump on and talk about this, this new feature, but also uh, spread the good word, I guess, that uh, all designs, including things like video campaigns, can and should be tested with real people, which you conveniently can do on our platform. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of the people responding to the video sort of said, have you ever like come within sniffing distance of a young person, let alone actually had a conversation with them? And um, 
from what I understand, Millie, the point of usability testing is to identify who it is you're talking to and test with them, not simply just test with anyone, any old person in the world. Because, you know, your Wes Anderson fans might have loved that video, but they are probably not the target audience. Yeah, look, I think I would expect that the media company that was hired by the government to do this, because, of course, everything is outsourced, um, probably would have had a bunch of young people on the project. But I think what you're touching on there is that it's, it's really probably more about just what we call kind of being in the bubble. Like maybe they all got the jokes and they all kind of got the references and it all made sense to them. But, um, yeah, it doesn't kind of really matter how old you are in some ways because... You know, this is just obviously this made sense to someone, but it didn't make sense to, as far as I can tell, almost everyone else who viewed it. <laughs> but I think especially, you know, the tone deaf um, point about, you know, really young people who were, you know, teenagers essentially, who was, you know, supposedly the target audience for this, I think, unless I'm deeply mistaken, this is not their language that, you know, that they speak, the, the language that this video is kind of made in. Yeah. Joe, did you see this milkshake video when it was making the rounds? I saw a lot of the fuss about it, but um, I didn't actually get to see the video itself. Oh, uh, well, like a quick description is that you have a young man and a young lady drinking a milkshake and... Um, for whatever reason, the young lady decides that she wants to smear her friend with milkshake. So she dips her hand in and gets a big glob of milkshake and then smears it all over his face. And then it's supposed to be like she thinks it's funny and she doesn't understand why he's upset and she has trouble like empathizing with him. And, um, you know, aside from anything else, there's a sort of strange cognitive dissonance in making the girl the sort of sexual attacker in this metaphor, knowing that that's statistically wrong and not almost, you know, not the case a significant amount of the time. Like, um, and also, yes, as Malia was describing, it was just sort of weirdly cutesy and filled with like strange metaphors, but didn't really like say the word sex or consent or talk about any of the sexual acts you might actually be referring to. Um, which in many cases is probably worse than just describing them simply and not mystifying them. It sounds like there should have been some really wide uh, research around comprehension. Yeah, well, that's a really good point. I mean, Millie, like, for people who aren't familiar with this design research space, can you tell us a bit more about, you know, how you can assess what people understand through this kind of research? Like, how do you actually you know, find out whether your message is landing? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, and one thing to point out here um, is that, you know, that our company is called Usability Hub, but I would say that the kind of testing you can do in this way is not all usability testing. So usability testing is kind of a, a specific type of testing, but something like comprehension testing, I guess comprehension is a type of usability, but it's probably a little bit broader than that. Um, and so, you know, a test a test for comprehension is something as simple as it's really just showing some someone your design and and then asking them questions that potentially you have identified earlier on as as maybe areas that you're not sure about or maybe your team potentially disagreed about them or you've identified them as a risk. So, for example, 
you might want to ask, you know, uh, do you understand the concept of moving the line, which was this, you know, concept that they brought up in this video, and just ask people to to play back to you in their own words what they think it meant. Um, and obviously this is, I'm using this in the context of this video, but you can use this on, in the context of a website or or an app or, or even a piece of writing potentially if it's, you know, technical and maybe needs um, a little bit of uh, thinking through. And so by just getting people to play back to you in their own words, you can you can get a sense of whether essentially your communication has been effective. Like, mm -hmm. did they get it is what you're testing for. Um, and then you can also do kind of, so that's maybe testing for a specific thing. And then you can t ask a general question as well, which might be, was there anything confusing about it? You know, did you find it interesting? Did you find it enjoyable? And that can kind of help you unearth blind spots. And that's that's a separate thing. You know, there's there's kind of the the things that you suspect might be confusing about the thing that you've made. And then there's the things that you just can't see anymore because you've probably been looking at it for too long and you know you've been working on this concept in this campaign for a long time and you just you just can't put yourself into the shoes of the person who is eventually going to be your, your actual audience. So we kind of recommend doing a combination of those things. And then when you actually have something visual, you know, being able to show that to someone rather than potentially, you know, describe it to them, you've got a real, a real you know, option to test something before you potentially uh, send it to production and put it on the air. I was uh, just going to say it would probably sort of using uh, metaf metaphors like that would probably fail accessibility for people who are neurodivergent who um, have trouble with uh, metaphorical situations. 100%. And that was one of the biggest criticisms of this work was, and, you know, I'm an, I'm an English major, so this, you know, this is close to my heart as well, just like a really poor use of metaphor mm. and not only like was the metaphor itself kind of convoluted and to be frank like dorky but it was it was also like you know in a, in in this particular topic area and this is more my kind of feminist persona rather than my designer persona this is not the kind of topic area where we want to be obscuring things mm. with metaphor. Like being direct about this and being able to talk about it and lifting some of the taboo around it is, is quite frankly like the majority of the problem here. So by further layering metaphors on it, it almost, and this is what, you know, some of the more sophisticated criticism kind of spoke about, it almost had a sense of like the, there was something that went on in the in the direction and creation process that was, you know, maybe they were instructed not to be direct about it. Maybe there was someone, some stakeholder who was uncomfortable with the topic area and only gave it the green light if it was spoken about indirectly. And so there were kind of ties to potential, you know, government parties who may have had agendas around this stuff. That I think, mm -hmm. you know, that is that is fair. It's a fair question to ask why a campaign about what is essentially sexual assault would be uh, using pastel colours and milkshakes and not basically just talking about the thing as it is. 
Yeah, I was reminded uncomfortably of the Harry Potter-esque, he, you know, he who shall not be named only, it's the act that shall not be named. Like, we won't say the words, you know, sex or sexuality at any point during the video, which happens to be about sex and sexuality and, like, the, you know, ways that we uh, negotiate it with each other. Um, totally. Yeah. Um, thank you. That was that was really insightful, Millie. I actually, like... Um, clarified my thinking just listening to you just just now um mm. and yeah look I, the other topic i wanted to raise related to this is we've seen a lot of messaging and especially statistical like graphs and visualizations fall a little bit flat through the covid era and that was something else on my mind that when you have really high importance high value public messaging around things like statistics around your risk of accepting a vaccine, for instance. It's so important that people understand what it is you're saying. Um, and it's it's been on my mind that, especially now that we're seeing uh, vaccine hesitancy, and especially in the older generation who are the most vulnerable to this disease, um, it's something where I worry that we're not doing enough testing and, and sort of checking to see how well these messages or these statistics are landing in the public domain. Yeah, that is a certainly a, a good point. Um, the hypothesis that maybe design research and testing could help uh, stop the spread of misinformation or disinformation. Um, look, I I want to believe that. I think that would be great. <laughs> I think I think you definitely come from you know your bias as well as the designer is. You are a thoughtful person who does think about testing things before, you know, sending them out, and that's kind of how your brain works. I think, unfortunately, a lot of the, the – there's uh, two things. One is, like, maybe science communication in itself is a very difficult piece. Um, my sister works in science comms at CSIRO, and um, she's got some real horror stories about, about how the ins and outs of that work, kind of translating complex scientific information for mass uh, media consumption, obviously very difficult. The other side of it is just, you know, um, how do different disciplines uh, engage with this concept of kind of testing testing things before shipping them? It's something that we do in, in technology very frequently, but, you know, we even have been trying to run some campaigns on, on this feature specifically, this video testing for marketers, and it's just not as much as an, of an accepted um, practice within something like marketing and advertising. And when you're starting to talk about that stuff, you're talking about media, you know, like mm. do journalists test stuff before they publish it? Like <laughs> yeah. as a, I was an ex-journalist. I don't remember it being part of, <laughs> part part of, of the, the discipline. Process, you know? yeah. you, I mean, your testing is essentially showing it to an editor, so it's more like mm. peer review. But, no, you don't you don't typically have any time in that process for that. So I would love to see more of it, of course. I think it's a critical step, but weaving it into disciplines outside of the tech world is a really interesting question that I think I would love to see happen, but not sure how to do it. Mm. Well, we've chatted for um, longer than I expected and we need to wrap up, but um, just, just to uh, close off, Millie, if people are interested in Usability Hub or want to check out um, and have a play around with the platform, where would they find you? Just usabilityhub.com. Usability Hub is one word. Um, and I'm sure that can go into the show notes if they were curious. Absolutely. Thank you, Millie. Triple R.
Thanks, Joe, for a wonderful evening. It's been so much fun hanging out with you. It has been lovely. Thank you also to our guests this evening, Weisu and Mubin Youssef from Navi Medical Technologies, as well as Millie Schmidt from Usability Hub. Also, thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCartney. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 